Today's episode begins by finding the commonality between female social groups, friendly professors, and people who stay really buff without getting paid for being buff at all. We visit the reality of a recent movie, and we rank the importance of the characters of that movie. We also travel back in time to Stanford 50 years ago and ask ourselves, what were they thinking? And then we check to see if the nightly news can help us understand as we ponder what it means to be part of this thing we call the game of life, all on the way to answering the question, what does NPC stand for anyway? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. So, do you know what the letters NPC stand for? Well, if you look it up, you might find that it is three initials that can stand for a lot of things, like National Panhellenic Conference, which is... I looked them up, an advocacy and support group for sororities, because let's be honest, when you take a moment from your life to think about what groups are seriously being disenfranchised and need someone to speak up for them, I bet you thought of sororities first. No? Huh, okay, that's a surprise. Or, okay, NPC can stand for National Park College, which specializes in two-year degrees and faculty that really cares about you, and I know that's true because it's on their website. Or NPC can stand for National Physique Committee, which is, again, according to their website, the premier amateur physique organization in the world. I mean, I didn't even know there were any amateur physique organizations, and I went online and managed to stumble upon the premier one, the premier one from the entire world in just my first try. Of course, as you can probably guess, none of these are the meaning of NPC, which pertains to today's podcast. So let's talk about a recent movie entitled Free Guy. This is a movie that takes place mostly in the world of a video game. And if you're older like me and you spent any time playing video games in your youth, then you're accustomed to games in which, say, you're the hero. Actually, very often, you're the only character in the game. You're trying to run and jump over obstacles or something like that. Now, eventually, computing power progressed, allowing more than one player so multiple people could be part of the same game and work together as a team or compete against each other. And then there were games that allowed thousands of people to be online and play at the same time because of the developed computing power. Now, Free Guy, which is the name of this movie, is the story of a particular character in a game called Free City. This character is named Guy, and he's an NPC. Now we get to the meaning of those letters. NPC stands for non-player character. If you think about it, a game like this allows people to play by taking on, in essence, personas and controlling them from their home computers, but there also have to be other people who aren't controlled by the players, but they're generated by the computer, that are controlled by the computer algorithms. And these computer-generated characters are NPC, non-player characters, meaning they are generated by the computer and there's not a person sitting behind these characters at home. This movie is the story of one of these characters, the NPC character, who becomes self-aware and he's struggling for his right to exist 
and his right to survive. Obviously, real person players in a game like this have all sorts of powers and rights that an NPC doesn't get. And consequently, real person characters get respect within the game, particularly this game that's taking place in the movie, that an NPC doesn't get. This game in the movie is a place where real people take on their digital persona and pretty much do whatever they want, which means often treating the NPCs with smug indifference or even often smug cruelty. The NPCs, after all, aren't like them. They're different. They aren't real, so they don't have to be valued or respected. Now, this is truly a case where you may be saying to yourself, give it a rest, Dan. If you want to make a joke at the beginning of this podcast that sororities don't need someone speaking up for them, well, you know who else doesn't need an advocate? Computer-generated graphics in video games. All right, Dan, I haven't seen the movie, but I'm going to take you at your word. There is a smug, cool indifference in the video game to computer-generated characters. And who cares? This is just a bit of fun, a bit of entertainment. They aren't real. They don't matter. Which is, at one level, all true. And yet, speaks to something about our nature, don't you think? Okay, allow me to explain. In 1971, there was a psychological experiment that has become famous in the field of psychology. It is known as the Stanford Prison Experiment, created and run by a Dr. Zimbardo. And it was an experiment to study the psychological effects of being a prisoner or being a guard in the prison system. Subjects were hired and told they were going to be part of a, quote, psychological study of prison life, end quote. The participants were screened to make sure that they were mentally stable before they even entered into this psychological experiment. And then they were divided, totally randomly, into groups, either the guard group or the prisoner group. Now, let's just be clear that things turned very dark very quickly. The experiment proceeded for five days until another professor of psychology at the school visited and was so disturbed by what she witnessed was taking place in this situation that she confronted Dr. Zimbardo and he was forced to shut it down on the sixth day. Now, you take a group of healthy, mentally stable people. You divide them into two groups. You divide them into the guards and the prisoners. And even though they know that no one did anything wrong, this is just an experimental construct, you find that suddenly the guards have dehumanized the prisoners and are abusing them The point is that we have a tendency to try and figure out who are the NPCs in life, so to speak. By this, I obviously don't mean that there are people who are computer-generated in our midst, but we have a tendency to look at humanity and immediately sort them into those who matter and those who don't. And we all do it, every single one of us. Not always to the same degree as others But we would be mistaken if we allowed ourselves to believe that, oh, I don't ever do this. This is something that other people do. So as I said, I recently watched this movie called Free Guy, starring Ryan Reynolds. And even though it is an adventure comedy set in an unreal world, it is striking and even disturbing how indifferent the characters can be to others. How indifferent, I think, it speaks to how indifferent we can be to others. 
So I watched this movie about this indifference where people who are players will just walk down the street shooting the NPCs, abusing the NPCs because they're not important. And it's funny. It's sport. It's fun. Then I wake up the next morning after having watched this movie. I open the Washington Post and I come across an article about the war in Ukraine. So I know you've already seen the reports and you, probably like me, are struck by the Russian indifference to human life and suffering, which may be true but is not my point today. Time and time again, reporting on the tragedy taking place in Ukraine has said the same thing. Look at these people from Ukraine. They aren't NPCs. Okay, it once again doesn't use that term, but that's really what it's saying. It says, look at these people suffering. They're real people. These people matter. So I'm going to share some audio clips, and I want you to listen to these reports and ask yourself, what is it that makes the people of Ukraine valuable? What are the sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken implications of these reports? Let's start with a news report that ran on CBS News. These are the words of their own correspondent who is giving his report for the day. People are hiding out in bomb shelters, but this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. Did you hear it? He said, this isn't a place, with all due respect, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European, and I have to choose these words carefully too, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. We're hoping it's going to happen some places and not other places. Here's a clip from the BBC interviewing an official from Ukraine. So a Ukrainian official being interviewed by somebody from the BBC. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. And the quote from him is, it's very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. The next sound clip, again, tells us why these people are important, not like other non-important people. These people are really important. Compelling is just looking at them, the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East. These are prosperous, middle-class people, not people trying to get away from areas in the Middle East. That's why these people are important. I just have one more clip. Bear with me. I know at this point you may be thinking, Dan, we don't need any more. But what I really want to do is prove the point that this is widespread, that I haven't just gone out and found one strange person who's making statements like this. So this next clip, I think, kind of sums it up for me. Just to put it bluntly, these are not refugees from Syria. These are refugees from uh, neighboring Ukraine. And that, quite frankly, is part of it. These are um, 
Christian, so white. These people are not refugees from Syria. These people, did you hear it at the very end? What makes them important? Well, they're Christian and they're white. That's why they're important. That's why we feel compassion for them in a way that we don't from those people from Syria. Look, I'm not here to judge. It may feel like it, but I'm not because there's not one amongst us who has not had similar feelings, similar thoughts about some person or some group of people who is suffering. We have at some point in our life thought, that's horrible. That person is Well, they're like me, so it shouldn't be happening to them. What I'm trying to say is that this is a learning opportunity for all of us. So the question is not, are the Ukrainian people like us, and should we therefore care about their plight? The real question to answer is, in all these reports, who are the implied people who don't matter as much? Who are those who aren't worth our concern? Also, if you listen to these reports, you'll often hear the reporter saying things like, you can see how they are like us. Most of the time, this is thinly veiled reference to their skin color, their geography, their wealth, their faith. When someone tells you to look at them and you will have compassion, I hope we are, as the listener, aware enough to wonder why. Why does seeing one person suffer cause more compassion than seeing someone else suffer? Okay, so given my own faith tradition, I look to the words of the Bible for direction. And a man approaches Jesus in the Bible and asks him, of all the commandments that God has given us, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, okay, this may not be helpful. After all, a neighbor is a person who lives next door or close to you, right? And so maybe Jesus is saying kind of your immediate geography. Maybe Jesus is actually saying people like you. And Ukraine, after all, is more of a neighbor than, say, Syria, which seems to get mentioned a lot, because it's closer, right? And so they're more of a neighbor. Okay, by that argument, Kiev is 5,300 miles from where I'm sitting right now, and the west coast of Africa is 4,300 miles. And let's be honest, neither is close enough to really be considered a neighbor. Seems like something more than proximity is driving our sense of who is our neighbor. And by the way, this whole question of who is our neighbor, it actually came up in the Bible too. Jesus was specifically asked, who is our neighbor? And he answered by telling them a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, one must realize that the people to whom Jesus told this story were Jewish, Jesus included. And they understood who they were because they were a small faith in a small land with very little actual power. So Jews had a clear sense of identity because it was vital to their survival. Yet, even so, no place was their identity more clearly understood than how they differed from this similar but separate faith group of people called Samaritans. Samaritans were wholly other. They were, in a very real sense, the most unneighbor group imaginable. 
And yet Jesus, when trying to answer the question, who is our neighbor, used a Samaritan as an example. Jesus said, think of the group who you definitely want to exclude, and we will use that as a starting point of inclusion for defining your neighbor. Now, I'm deeply disturbed by the pain and suffering that's being experienced by the people of Ukraine. It is horrible and it is unjust. The problem is not our compassion for the people of Ukraine. It is our effort to explain away our lack of compassion for others who are suffering similar plights but are different from us. There are other wars, lots of them happening in our world right now, but many of them are happening in Africa and the Middle East. And that, well, that seems to be the kind of human suffering that we in the West can live with. I'm reminded of the quote from The Merchant of Venice, the play by Shakespeare. Here's the quote. I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? We can rephrase that Shakespearean quote for our own world today. Jews, Christians, Muslims, white, black, Asian, native people from a myriad of God-created lands around the world, if they are displaced, do they not suffer? If they are wounded, do they not bleed? If their children are killed, do they not all grieve? In this game of life, there are no NPCs. They are all like us. And when any of them suffer, it grieves the heart of God. And it should grieve our hearts too. No exceptions. That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you. My email address is dan at skypilot, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T dot zone. That's dan at skypilot dot zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.